You're listening to Just Asking, where we discuss the subject that everyone wants to talk about without really knowing how to talk about it. Why do we human beings, who are obviously so sexual, have such a difficult time talking about managing this intimate part of our lives? We talk about managing our money, we manage our careers, our diets, and even our stock portfolios. Yet when it comes right down to it, we really don't know how to talk about managing our sexuality. And certainly, we don't know how to talk about doing it intelligently. So that's exactly what we talk about on this show. Welcome to Just Asking, a safe place where we talk about human sexuality. I'm Stephen Ng, and in my decades of working with people who have sexual problems, I've learned that we can all manage our sexuality better, more intelligently. Uh, Jackie, what's going on with you today? Well, you know, it's interesting, Stephen. Last time I was here, um, we were talking about how divorced parents should not hide their uh, extracurriculars, I guess, from their children, um, and how we're able to model our, our dating and love and broken hearts and those things when we're willing to share that part of our life with our children. And I went home that night at dinner and we always do, what did you learn today? And when my son asked me, my, my teenage son asked what I learned, I told him that I had done some things wrong and that I had never dated in front of him. Um, because when he was going week on, week off with his dad, I would just date on the weeks he was with his dad. And so I told him that and he said to me, oh, I didn't realize you'd ever dated anybody. Um, in 13 years. <laughs> so it worked. I mean, so it worked. I, I hit it very well from him, evidently. Um, and he said, yeah, you did do that wrong. Wow. Yeah. So um, it's been a while since I've dated. And so, you know, we were ta- kind of talking about, um, and now I'm older. And so I think things through too much more than, you know, in your 20s and you just act on instinct. So my question to you is how couple of questions. How do you figure out what in your own self is kind of keeping you from dating and getting to know somebody? And then also when you do find somebody you're interested in, how, how should you go about getting to know somebody? And I know this sounds intuitive, but... Well, I, I think you've asked me two fantastic questions. I'm not sure I can do a service to both of them right now. Uh, because the first question, you know, really has to do with are embracing who we are and finding some honorable and socially acceptable way of being who we are uh, so that our kids can feel comfortable and safe and that we are still acknowledging our own personal reality. Uh, We often think about gay people in our community coming out of the closet, but most of the time, in my experience as a counselor, it's we heterosexuals who have the hardest time coming out of the closet and being who we are sexually. We minimize, we deny, and um, try to pretend as if it doesn't exist. And I think partly because we're afraid of how creepy it's going to be, especially to young children. But in this case, you're simply talking about being a normal adult woman who wants to date. Uh, You've been divorced for some time and uh, you've gone apparently years without uh, ever letting on to the fact that you still absolutely happen to like men and you still are the kind of normal person who would like to have a loving relationship in your life. And so just even acknowledging that, I think, with kids is such a a big deal. And 
and then within ourselves to to acknowledge that my of my clients i think most commonly i hear the complaint uh from those who aren't dating uh how awful the opposite sex is and how um how could they ever trust them how could they ever believe in love again how could they ever uh, let down their guard again and i i think the issue is really truly the opposite uh, as it so often is, it's counterintuitive. The, the problem is that I, if I'm scared of dating, it's that I don't have confidence in myself. I am afraid, not that I'm not good looking enough or not that I'm not um, you know, enough of a catch that somebody out there might be interested in me, but that, that I won't have the skills or the insight to see through some of the nonsense and BS that people are laying down and that I'll get caught up in something that in hindsight turns out to be really foolish and then I'll get enormously hurt. Uh, I'll be greatly taken advantage of and I'll be made a fool of. And I, I think most of us would like to know that there's some way we could reasonably avoid that. And I think there is. And the, and the first big thing I think everybody out there in the world needs to understand, and it's sad because we, we, we could so easily teach this to one another and we don't, is uh, the simple facts of life regarding the narcissistic timeline. Narcissism uh, is usually uh, uh, referred to as a kind of a excessive self-love. And it comes from the, uh, the ancient Greek myth of Narcissus, who was uh, cursed by the gods to fall in love. After breaking the heart of, of an innocent, he was cursed by the gods to fall in love with the first person he saw. And he happened to gaze into a pond and he saw his own reflection. And so that's, that's kind of how we, we get to where it's an excess of self-love. But with the narcissistic timeline, what we mean is that no matter when you fall in love with anyone, you are going to be at a disadvantage in this if you don't understand that what you love about the other person is really a reflection of what you love about yourself. So, for example, we've all heard the, uh, a friend say something like, oh, I just met the most interesting man or the most interesting woman. And then they begin describing how beautiful she is, how handsome he is, how wonderful they are, and how their interests are so much like their own. And the, it's easy to see the narcissism and the reflected interests. You know, if we're both into NASCAR or mud wrestling or English poetry from the 17th century, we, we're going to, uh, that's really going to resonate with us. Ah, somebody who understands me and my passions and they really get what I'm all about. But even in the looks department, you know, I as a, man, a heterosexual man, I have an ideal female form in my mind. You know, whether it's a blonde brunette or a redhead, isn't so much the thing as it is that she'll she'll act in a certain way. Her eyes will twinkle in a certain way. There'll be a, a certain kind of a smile. She'll have a certain kind of uh, fascination with every word that falls from my lips, and and that her body is conforming to my notion of what is the ideal instead of uh, doing something that would be m maybe more mature, but really wouldn't be human because it's really not natural. I mean, it's, it is natural for our species to develop these 
spot welds with one another. And historically, because we didn't live that long, we needed to get busy with the uh, business of making new babies. And so it didn't really matter if we had a quality relationship. It just mattered that we liked each other enough to do it. But these things that you're talking about are all important things, right? The ability to have a conversation with somebody, the ability to have things in common, the ability to be attracted to them physically, they matter. Absolutely, absolutely. But what you're saying is to not get all caught up in that. Well, yes and no. I mean, we... (laughs) It, it's 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 a little more complicated because whenever we fall in love with uh, with another person and it's mutual, we don't have a hard time talking with one another. I mean, we're in the, we're off in a corner at the party and our heads are in each other's space, talking, talking, talking. So it seems like we can talk, and then five years later, they're in a marriage counselor's office saying we can't communicate. Uh, so it seems like they can talk, but. Really, any people speaking a common language can talk. It's, <laughs> it's can we talk about the things we need to talk about in the way we in which we need to talk about them, and even the the physicality, um, you know, it's. I think most of us fall into that that wonderful place in the middle where where we're good enough. You know, if there's enough there, if I'm if I'm needy enough and lonely enough, and the right woman pays attention to me. I'm attracted. I'm going to be very interested. And I think it works something like that for women. You know, one of the things, and we've had this conversation on the sidebar for a second um, with my women friends, how we do have a type, but sometimes once you get to know somebody, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter if they conform to the type because you fall for the personality and then they become sexy when they maybe you didn't see that before. Right. And so maybe uh, for... A woman of a certain age, whether it's in her 20s or her 40s, she's never considered an older man before. But for some reason, there's this guy at work and they kind of have a little connection. And over time, she finds herself growing fond of him. What I'm talking about is on the day in which she first falls in love and on the day in which he first falls in love with her, that's when the stopwatch starts ticking. Okay. Okay, so at that point, it becomes narcissistic. Even if we've known each other for years, you went, you were high school sweethearts who knew each other from the neighborhood and when you were little kids and you finally got married at age 25. Whenever it was that you fell in love, that's when the narcissistic timeline begins. And that narcissistic timeline typically takes 90 to 120 days before that pink cloud of testosterone and estrogen and all the other wonderful feelings start dissipating to where I can see her for so much more than just a reflection of myself. But she's actually, unbelievably, without any prior notice, she's actually a person in her own right. She's she's somebody who has her own thoughts, her own lifestyle, her own taste in music, her own friends, and she's done all of this um, without consulting me, of course. And now I'm kind of presented with these things, but it's okay because I'm really crazy about her and I really love her. So a little bit like stepping onto a dance floor with somebody who looks amazing and is so interesting, and then um, they step on your toe. And it hurts like hell, and you... But hey, they're amazing and it's going really wonderful. So you 
you minimize it and you ignore it. And then a few minutes later, they step on your toe again. At some point, sooner or later, we're all going to get kind of tired of that. And it's the same with narcissistic love. If I think the person I fell in love with represents the soul, the sum total of who she is, I'm really missing out on that bigger picture. And that's so at 90 to 120 days, it begins to dissipate. Uh, we might still remain very narcissistically attached for years after that, that so much of what we love about each other is a reflection of our own greatness. But as time goes by and we start seeing their personal habits, the way they um, clean up or fail to after themselves in the bathroom, uh, whether they are a squeezer or a roller with the toothpaste, um, however it is that we are going to be annoyed, we are inevitably going to be annoyed with this person. And then we have this wonderful opportunity and the opportunity is, can I learn to love her for who she is or not? Because sometimes there are some deal breakers. I mean, I've talked to people who got married in the first week uh, of knowing each other and uh, seemed like a good idea at the time. And the French have a saying, he who marries in haste repents at his leisure. And I think for a lot of us, I've just, you know, let me say it this way. I've never met anybody who told me in counseling, I just spent way too much time getting to know them before we got married. So love at first sight is not a thing. No. Well, it's love. You're in love, but you don't love that person because, and you cannot love that person because you don't even don't know, know who them. they are. So one of the things we were talking about earlier offline is um, online dating. And one of the things, the traps, I think, with online dating is you do think that you know more, right? Because you've got their whole profile on there. You don't have to ask where they worked or about, you know, prior, even prior relationships. Do they have kids? All the questions. It's all right there. But that's not the same either. No, because, again, it's extremely narcissistic, and I'm responding to who they're telling me they are. But whether he's um, a carpenter or a plumber or a doctor or a lawyer, that really doesn't tell me about his character and how he behaves. And how, how does he treat waitresses when we're out, you know, eating a meal together? And how will he treat them after we're in a committed relationship? You know, when his guard isn't up and he's trying to polish the apple for the presentation. So I, I, I love the Internet. I think it's very valuable for so many reasons. But uh, for dating, I think, and for finding a mate, I think the Internet has yet to grow into that place where it's going to provide a satisfactory um, vehicle for most of us. And, and I say that knowing that so many of these uh, businesses have commercials attesting to how many married people met each other at their website. And I don't know really how to explain all of that because I haven't looked at that data or met those people. But I, I prefer something that our species has done for centuries and millennia, and that's getting to know each other in normal environments where we're not auditioning for a leading role in their life, but we're just observers. Um, for those of us in this modern age, it usually means sitting in a classroom like in high school or college and observing how thoughtful someone's remarks are or how they're treating the other students or 
how they handle their responsibilities, you know, for their homework. We we learn a lot about each other by observing without being involved. So how would you recommend meeting somebody? You know, for me, uh, I, th- I just think there's the easiest, best, and most natural way that's a win-win for everybody every time is if we could each take responsibility for developing a life of our own, a life worth living and a life worth sharing. And to do that, I have to actually, in order to find the right person, I have to let go of trying to find the right person and instead pursue the activities, the, the hobbies, the classes, the career that I find fascinating or that I think I will. So if I've never jumped out of an airplane and I've always wondered about that and I want to do that, go do that. And all of those activities that I'm talking about are usually done in groups. And when you do that in a group of people, surprise, surprise, you're going to end up meeting people who like doing that too. And with those people, men and women, you're going to have something in common. And even if there's no one who's romantically interesting to you in that group, simply enlarging your social network to include all these new people who know you, who hopefully like you, and who share this new activity with you, they're going to be thinking about their own network of friends and family who are single, who they'd like to meet, and they'd like to have that person meet somebody just like you. So the win-win there is, even if I don't meet that special someone, I'm still exploring my life and my my dreams and becoming who I would like to be with my own life. Oh, and if I go home at the end of the day, I'm 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 living a richer, deeper life that's very enjoyable because not all of us, I'm sorry to say, find someone who's special. It's conceivable that I might go my entire life without finding someone and although that's very sad to to consider, it is a possibility. And if that were true, if in your case, all the men on earth were wiped out by a plague, would that be the day you commit suicide? Or would that be the day that you kind of sit down to have a think about what am I going to do with the rest of my life now? And I think for most of us, after the shock of accepting that idea um, that we're, we could be alone, we we kind of want to dig a little deeper and determine what it is would make a a meaningful life work out for us. Now, I know for some people it's just too painful and for them it's, uh, they got to go to the bar. And while they're at the bar, they will meet someone. Well, it's interesting because I've actually done the other way where I have always just assumed that I would be by myself or with my friends or because I have amazing friends. I have amazing family. I have a very full life, everything you're saying, mm-hmm. you know. But I have recently thought, you know, that could be fun. It could be fun to get older with another person and have somebody to travel with. And, you know, and my sons are almost out of the house. And so maybe it's time to start thinking beyond that. And so now I actually am thinking, okay, potential relationship, not just someone to hang out with, you know. More than a one-night stand? I don't have one-night stands. <laughs> I have never had a one-night stand. <laughs> At least not intentionally. Sometimes too. <laughs> um, but it, what's interesting is um, I made that decision about a week ago. Wow. Okay. Um, and I've had two people in the last week say to me, hey, I know a guy. You know, isn't that fascinating that when we finally do decide after maybe years of uh, dry spell in the romance department 
there's just something mental that goes on when we put out the welcome mat. You know, people pick up on this vibe. Maybe it is from something we said, but a lot of times it's just from a different way of carrying ourselves. So, you know, for me, I, it just seems really clear that we're genetically endowed with a very strong need to affiliate with adult companionship. And of course that spells sex and romance. And it is, it's far more than just fun. It's, it's really a need we have. So, you know, I'm delighted to hear that you're interested in meeting someone and, I'm, and that you're kind of opening your, your mind up to considering that. But I have to tell you an anecdotal story. I, I had my list of deal breakers and one of them was I absolutely had to have an outdoorsy kind of girl who would be into backpacking with me and hiking and, and all of that. And then I, uh, I met my wife. And as time went by, it became absolutely clear that she was a, a true girly girl and that there was no uh, blow dryer cord long <laughs> enough to get up into the mountains with her. So... And what what I was surprised by was that it didn't matter anymore when I started getting so many other needs met. And I went on to be further surprised when I realized that although I, I knew myself better and I knew, for example, I could never be with a smoker or somebody who abused drugs or alcohol, I, I really needed to keep a more open mind because I didn't realize how wonderful some people could be. And you don't know what you don't know. That's absolutely what I found out. So um, one of the ways we've talked about is in getting to know a person is not sexual, right? Because once we start having sex, all the things, right? You don't like how I say it, which is that it makes me stupid. Sex makes me stupid. But things happen and you start making decisions that you might not normally make if you have your whole wits about you. Well, you know, I can be more diplomatic and say <laughs> I, I agree with you. I think in some ways it does make us stupid because none of us would ever presume, uh, in the modern world at least, to marry somebody we didn't know. Uh, but we create an illusion of knowing someone when we are making out with them and touching them and everybody is having a great time getting naked. And uh, the more we do that, uh, and that's the more we do that, we start confusing that activity with intimacy. And you can there is such a thing as sexual intimacy, but it's more than just having sex with somebody. It's really being safe to share who I am with someone. And we don't do that on our first several encounters so much. Um, and that's why for many people, sex with their spouse just gets better and better and better over time because they feel safer and safer and safer. And so they're freer to be more and more themselves. And that's rather fascinating. Uh, once you get over the narcissism, it's fascinating to discover that that really unexplored territory that is this other person. And, and territory, I might add, that that she might not even understand exists because she herself is on a journey getting older for one thing, and also trying new experiences that she's never tried before. And, you know, I'm not specifically talking about those experiences related to titillation, you know, where she's wearing a furry costume or <laughs> something like you're swinging from a chandelier, but something more like just really 
understanding that five years deep into a relationship, what I used to like might not turn me on at all anymore. And things that I never thought would turn me on really do. So, you know, for me, that's that part about sex that, you know, with, with love, we want attention, affection, approval, and affirmation. And we get all of that with sex to a limited degree. So it's really easy to mistake sexual intimacy for love. And in that to that degree, I would say it does kind of make us stupid. But I would encourage people to go with their nature in the sense that you know you're going to have a narcissistic uh, affection for one another from the beginning. Go with it. Just enjoy it. Let it be what it is. Don't worry about it. The scales will fall from your eyes in due process and you'll start to notice that, oh my God, he really does burp like that? That's disgusting. <laughs> and and as time goes by, if you find yourself capable of really still enjoying that person's company, for me, it's a stage where I would begin what I call the intelligent interview or the intentional interview. Just like those old movies where the father says to the young suitor, young man, what are your intentions? Uh, my intentions are to have a great date, first of all, where that, that means I'm going to have fun. And for me, part of having fun on a date is getting to know the other person. But I also have an ultimate intention that whether this date works out to what I'd like it to be or not, I am looking for someone special to share my life with. Not because it would be so much just fun, but also because I need that in my life. And no matter how successful and happy I am, it's just going to fill some, some emptiness that I don't have taken care of. So that intentional interview then becomes asking about all the important things that people never ask about. You know, I've, I've seen people buy cars or shop for houses, and they spend so much time doing marketing research and having inspectors come over to look at the house or having the mechan their mechanic look at the car. And we virtually never do anything near that arduous when it comes to really researching our potential mate. So this has been Stephen Ng talking with my friend Jackie about courtship. And if you have any questions you would like us to discuss, tweet us at Stephen Ng MFT. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you. This has been a production by Ng Intellectual in cooperation with Estepona Group. Interview by Jackie Shelton. Music produced by Octophonics. Editing by Lucas Bacchelli. To listen to more episodes, visit stephening.com.